Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Today on the show, we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Cheryl Copeland. She is a board-certified veterinarian that practices medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. She also is a certified canine rehabilitation therapist. Dr. Copeland also has lots of experience working with human athletes as well. She has spent her time being a pain management and fitness instructor at the YMCA. And in her free time, she has found training for half marathons and ultras. Dr. Copeland, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So you have a very full plate uh, professionally (laughs) and personally. You're also a brand new mom. I got to ask, how do you find time to fit all of this in? You make time (laughs) when it comes to fitness aspect of things, you just, you get up early and you go before work or before the baby wakes up or you do it after the baby goes to bed Yeah, (laughs) or when he's napping. Finding time uh, for the things that you love and the things that, that drive you forward. Exactly. Or he comes with me and that's another thing too. Yeah. I bet that presents a brand new array of challenges, bringing the baby along. So did you always know that you wanted to get into veterinary medicine and pursue rehab work or how did that come about? So yes to veterinary medicine. I've always wanted to be a veterinarian um, since I was a little girl. And I feel like a lot of people say that, but it really, yeah, ever since I was, could say doggy, I wanted to be a doggy doctor. Rehab came later, um, but I've actually always been interested in integrative medicine the first clinic I ever worked at as a, as a technician was an integrative practice. And he was actually the first acupuncture veterinarian in Atlanta. So I kind of knew there was other avenues within veterinary medicine, not just straight Western. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I found rehab kind of gelled with my own ethos and yeah. then I, it kind of fell into place with that. And that's kind of why I went and got my specialty or my certification. Yeah. And and what about the human fitness side of it? Have you always been an athlete? No. <laughs> so I started actually, I started getting more into fitness. I took a couple of years between undergrad and vet, and vet school. Um, and I actually got my, my, my uh, fitness instructor certification at that point. Um, Cause I was getting more into fitness then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then running, I got into running actually in vet school. Um, as a stress relief originally, and then it became a lot more than that. <laughs> so, yeah. That's usually um, the story. You get started and it's addictive in one capacity or yeah, another. And Yeah. But yeah, no. So I was actually like, I was a band, I was a band in high school. I was not very athletic. I mean, I was always kind of like active, but I was never right. like an athletic person, you know, in sport. So right. it was more later on that I kind of developed my, my love of it. Yeah. And I know that you are enjoying this recreationally. You've also helped people professionally with this. Uh, And you on weekends and training, take your own dog out running with you as well, right? Yes. Mr. Miles. (laughs) Now, how is he doing all of your training runs with you? Are you alternating which runs he's going on based on what's on your schedule? Yeah. So I alternate. um, He's 11 now. So I tend to do more of my lower key runs with him like my slower pace runs, although he can definitely go fast too. And he wants, especially in the cold, he's a frisky dude. So he likes, <laughs> he likes to go. Um, but usually if we're going faster, it's a shorter run. Um, I used to do occasional speed work with him. Um, but I have backed him off of that just cause I feel like it's a little too much for his body at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he needs that so much more, more, I think more endurance specifically for him, I think is important. Yeah. And I think that's really nice too, that you have all of that knowledge to be able to support him. You know, lots of our listeners are getting off the couch and getting active with their dogs. And sometimes the things that we think are beneficial for them, getting them up and moving when done in the wrong way can certainly have negative side effects for them. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So let's start with kind of the human side of things. You have run ultra marathons, which blows my mind a little bit. How do you even go about preparing for something like that? And how long of a time frame do you need? So it depends on where your skill level is to start with. So if you're already running half marathons or marathons, it's pretty easy to jump to a, a 50K distance. Um, and that's usually the starting 
point for most ultras is 50k um and when you're thinking about ultra distances most of the time they're on trails or combination trail road but mainly on trail i've actually found that running a 50k for me is easier than a, than a road than a road marathon my body doesn't hurt nearly as bad because the ground itself the impact is not nearly as bad either mm-hmm. so generally you wherever you're starting you want to kind of build yourself up distance wise like you would for a half but i kind of I'm I'm a runner. I run usually three to four days a week. I don't run every day. I find that people who run every day end up having a lot of overuse injuries. Granted, you can still get overuse injuries as you're going those longer distances. Um, I had a coach that I was working with um, to kind of build me up slowly so that I didn't injure myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and in turn, that helped me actually train miles with me too. Um, he didn't do ultra distance, but he he did some long ones. So. Yeah. But that that's my biggest thing is you want to take it slow. You don't ever want to go straight out the gate. I'm going to do a 50K and just say, like, I'm going to go all the way out. I usually recommend doing a few half for, halves first, doing a few marathons first, and then build yourself up. Um, and using those train, I use those races, those marathons and half marathon distances as training runs for myself to pace myself. Um, I don't like to... I don't like to just go into a race without having a little base behind me and knowing mm-hmm. what my body can do and what the signs of tire of, of fatigue during a race feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to do back-to-back runs when you're training for an ultra um, on the weekends, long runs, not just short runs, um, so that your body can run on tired legs and see what that feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we'll talk about it later, but um, nutrition is a big factor into that too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine what a training plan would look like preparing for something like that. I've certainly run half marathons. I have run marathons, but I can't imagine my body being in motion that long, (laughs) but I do imagine that that training plan looks different depending on each individual athlete in terms of the amount of time that they need to get there. That and your schedule too. Like you also have to, you know, look at everything else you do in your life. And then for me, I'm, I am a big proponent of cross training, mm-hmm. um, and strength training. Cause I feel like that's when you start getting your overuse injuries is when you're not actually actively training other muscles as well. Yep. Um, that kind of leads me into my fitness instructor world <laughs> yeah. when I was teaching, um, before the COVID, uh, I was teaching cycle classes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and strength, and I also taught foam rolling classes, um, and as, as a runner, I was, it was really nice to be able to teach cycle and just kind of keep that base. Um, but you can also do hit classes. I would do boot camp classes as well. Um, but I think it's important to usually I would cycle one to two days a week and I would do a strength class one to two days a week. And then now I do yoga almost daily, not quite daily, but I try to do at least a, a 10 minute practice every day. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you have to do an hour long yoga practice. Um, but I do find that making sure you have that flexibility in there. Foam rolling is super important to prevent injury as well. That is something that I'm, that's why I started teaching that class um, at the Y mm-hmm. uh, because I was seeing people first, not using the rollers properly. <laughs> and yeah. you, can, you can injure yourself using a roller if you're not doing it right. But I also was noticing that people didn't know how to, like what they were and why mm-hmm. to use them. Um, and even if you're just doing a 5k, it's important to make sure that your muscles are, are, are flexible and mm-hmm. are, are malleable to be able to do the work. So to break down that scar tissue that even just forms from sitting in a chair all day at desk, mm-hmm. um, it's important to break it up and you notice the compensatory injuries that you have if you're not careful and, and working on your body yourself. Um, yeah. And that's why people do deep tissue massage, but most people can't afford to do that every day. So, yep. so rolling is a really good way to do that. And trigger point therapy is kind of specifically how I like to look at it. Yeah. I, I imagine too, at least I know for me that too many days of running in a row or in a week, I can start to feel, you know, the results of the impact of running. And so for me, cross training is a really nice way to not only look at the body as a whole and look at all those muscle groups that I'm building, work on flexibility, but also stay in shape cardiovascularly without putting that impact-based strain on the body. Yeah. 
So you do a lot of cycling, you do a lot of yoga. Are there other cross-training exercises or cross-training areas that you enjoy for runners? I love strength training. You feel strong and you feel powerful. And Mm -hmm. if you're weak somewhere, you'll know it. And that's something when you're running, you use a lot of the same muscles all the time. Mm -hmm. So you forget that there are other parts of your glutes that you need to activate or even your upper body because you're doing all this lower body work. You're, it, you got to balance. So I do a lot of strength training. It was, it's been difficult with COVID, but kind of built a home gym-ish kind of mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> Getting creative <laughs> at I home. Love, I actually do a lot of YouTubers. Mm-hmm. I, I like to do a lot of YouTube workouts that are really good quality strength workouts. And there's some bad ones out there. So you have to kind of be careful with form, but I do find that there's some really good avenues to do stuff at home that's easy to fit into your schedule. They're all different lengths. So if you only have 15 minutes to do a strength workout, there's definitely one there with a good trainer. Yeah. So I tend to add the strength training in more specifically to help balance my ankles and my quads and my, and get my glutes firing. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually post baby, I've, I've done a lot more work with that than I did pre baby, but, um, Cause there's a lot of imbalances that happen after pregnancy too, that you have to work with. Yeah. Um, so getting myself back into shape has been a, has been a long road as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I do my strength training at home as well. And I think it's so important for people to know that you can access easy at home things and you don't necessarily need a ton of equipment. It's something that you could get started with on your own. And then as your skill level progresses, as you gain more confidence in it, you know, start to add small pieces of equipment or weights to your home to increase your routine. Yep. Yep. Hand weights is really all you need. You need a couple hand weights, a heavy yeah. set and a lighter set. I actually, if you want to get something else equipment wise, I love TRX straps. Mm-hmm. They are really helpful for a full body workout without having to put so much strain on your joints. If you are having joint issues mm-hmm. um, and it's really good for flexibility as well. So yep. that's another one you can add in. <laughs> now, in addition to all of the activity that we're doing to target the body as a whole, we also need our rest days. Yeah. How do you decide how many rest days you need? And does that ever change based on how your body is feeling? Each oh, day? always. Yeah. So during, so if I were to be training for something right now, generally I, I fit in. So rest days can look different for different people. And you kind of have to follow what your body feels like. So if I'm feeling exhausted, I don't work out that day or I'll do a little like stretch yoga kind of thing just to kind of keep myself flexible. But I don't, I don't do any high intensity or anything like that. Um, So I usually do one to two days off a week is my normal during training. Occasionally that one day off a week doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if I want to get in an extra strength workout or something like that. Um, but generally I try to at least get one day off a week where I'm not doing anything high impact and may just do stretching that day Um, Mm -hmm. or take a walk with the dog, you know, something something easy, um, in the baby, you know, something around the corner. So that's, that's kind of how I do my, my, my programs since I'm not training for a whole lot. I tend to do more because my workouts are not quite as intense as they normally are, but I have to remind myself to take off. I can sometimes have a hard time with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but definitely rest is important. If you're feeling tired, adjust your plan. If you mm-hmm. feel like you were planning on doing a speed workout and your legs are just exhausted, go for just a nice, easy, easy, slow run. Mm-hmm. Um, and slow doesn't, you don't have to keep a certain, that's something I had to learn early was you don't need to go all out every run. Mm Because actually the beneficial runs, the ones that you do super, super slow and you're going like two minutes a mile or minute mile slower than your normal pace is really important for your body to recover. Mm -hmm. And it helps your body actually be able to endure a lot more long term. Now, our training runs generally, you know, with our dogs, we try to stay on softer surfaces. Is that generally the recommendation for people too? I know that different terrain is better for me to work on proprioception or body awareness, but generally for me, softer tends to be better. Is that what you find as well? I find, yes, for myself, unfortunately, life gets in the way sometimes and you have to run on on roads. (laughs) Yeah. And actually lately, uh, that's all I've been doing, um, which is not my favorite. I prefer Mm -hmm. to be on the trails because I love to explore and 
my body feels better on the trails. Yeah. But if you have to run on the road, just listen to yourself, you know, and, and if you are training for say a road marathon, mm-hmm. you want to run on the road, your long runs, right. You want to mimic what you're going to be doing in a race. So if you're running on the trails, you want to like for a race, you want to mimic your training. Um, you can do runs like your shorter runs on, on like road or firmer ground. But if you're, if you're going to be training for a trail run, you're going to want to train on the trails because mm-hmm. running on trails versus roads, very different. Yeah. Um, in the way you, your stride is the way your pace is, um, and the impact on your body. So road, you have a lot higher impact, your knees and hips have to adjust to that. Um, which is why I tend to like trail runs longer. Yeah, me too. <laughs> your body doesn't hurt quite as bad on the impact. Yep. Um, if you're going to be running on gravel versus dirt single track, that's also, or just Rudy roads, you know, mm-hmm. Rudy trail, you know, that's, or high incline, you know, I tend to challenge myself throughout the year doing different fun things, or I call them fun, but, you know, changing up your, your training as well. So like I'll do, I'll do elevation training for a month mm-hmm. and try to get as much elevation as I possibly can and go up and down Kennesaw mountain 12 times, you know, like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe not that many, but you know, I think the most I've done was like four, but, That's um, <laughs> but I mean like, so, or you go and do more exploring. I've done, I've right. run, um, Springer mountain up by, um, up by Emma falls to the approach It's the approach trail to the Appalachian trail and gone that way. I've run Cloudland Canyon. I I mean, like, so trying out different trails is also Mm -hmm. important. Keeps your brain happy and you get to explore. And it's not always about pace unless Mm -hmm. that's your goal. Sometimes it's about the experience of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to run with a lot of friends, although not since COVID. I've been running a lot by myself, which has been very hard. (laughs) So I have a really amazing group of women that I, and men that I run with that um, makes it more enjoyable as well. Um, and that's something you kind of have to find your, your niche a little bit whenever you're, when you're finding your group. And I find that keeps you accountable too. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, Especially when you're training for a big race, finding Mm -hmm. a partner to run that race with you is going to be key to keeping you accountable for, for training. Yeah, I find that too. Running, running with groups and, you know, right now we can't as much with COVID, but even having a group chat where you guys are kind of all on the same training plan or working on the same things, just being able to connect with people and and communicate with them does help with that accountability. It gets you up in the morning, it gets you out doing your runs and then gives you people to share it with, which I think is important and keeping us all motivated right now. So during the run, I imagine that your plan nutritionally changes quite a bit depending on what you're training for. Talk to us about some of those changes that you have made to help your body reach its max performance. So I would say the first and most important thing is hydration. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And depending on the time of year that you're running and the temperature you're running in, I think also plays a factor. Mm -hmm. Um, You tend to start to learn your body when you're doing longer distances. But even for the shorter runs, so like for me, for now, for me, a 5k, I don't in the, in the winter time, I don't really need water in the, in the winter. I, I drink before and I drink after, mm-hmm. um, but during, I don't necessarily need it, but anything longer, it's important because you're sweating even in the winter time. Um, I may not do quite as much electrolyte in the winter time for myself. If I'm doing a shorter run, um, any, like the half, like I did a half marathon, I did 13.1 yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did drink electrolytes like after, um, I forgot to bring it with me, but I brought it after I hadn't planned on running 13 and it ended up being a 13 mile. <laughs> but anyways, so, um, yeah, so it's important to, to start knowing what works for your stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, because not every electrolyte drink is the same. Um, I tend to like to get the ones that I can concentrate myself. Um, and you kind of have to try different ones. I, I mean, I've used so many different ones. I've used none. I've used, um, tailwind I've used, um, like just Gatorade, which does not work for my stomach. Some mm-hmm. people that works great for, I cannot touch Gatorade. And now for during a race, if it's a really, really long one towards the, like towards the latter third of a race, I like Coke. 
<laughs> I like drinking yeah. Coke towards the end because it gives you the right amount of sugar and the right mm-hmm. amount of caffeine just to keep you going. But some people don't like, and I like the bubbles because yep. I think it makes my stomach calm down a little bit. Yep. Um, but it's, you got to find the right electrolyte drink. And in the summertime, you need to be drinking a lot of water in Georgia. Way more than <laughs> you think you anywhere need to. Anywhere that's hot. Um, yeah. So I usually bring a water vest with me. Um, that's a two liter water vest. Mm-hmm. I usually fill it up anywhere from one and a half to two liters. Um, and by the end of my run, I should have finished almost all of that. Yep. Usually for a long run. Um, probably anything over like 16, I should have finished it. Maybe not for half, but definitely for 16. Now, what about food on the trail? Are you eating when you're doing these ultras? I do. Yeah. So that's another thing you have to kind of play around with. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm good for, I can eat a lot of different things. Um, generally I start with gels or with, with gels, Mm -hmm. um, and you have to find the right one that works for you. I tend to like spring. And I like Huma. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend, they're more naturally sourced, more digestible kind of gels. And so my stomach tends to not get upset with them. But I've had, I've taken Goose. I've taken all the others as well. Or the Chews. I know um, Honey Stinger makes some really delicious Chews as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like real food. So yeah. I'll, I'll eat something like a Lara bar or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or like fruit. like bananas, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or an orange, you know, something like that will also be really helpful. Um, you, I like pretzels during ultras. Most of the aid stations have real food. I mean, the best thing in the world, like in an ultra is, is a grilled cheese, um, for me. (laughs) That's Um, awesome. Um, I mean, I've had soup in the middle of a race, like, especially like when I did, I've done a couple overnight races, like Mm -hmm. soup is amazing in the middle of the night. Like, um, or I know some people will eat pizza. I can't do that, but everyone, you, some people have iron stomachs and, and can eat whatever they want. Yeah. I know if you're going, if you're vegan or vegetarian, it's can be hard sometimes to, I'm, I'm not, but I know I have some friends who are, it mm-hmm. can be hard sometimes to get the right calorie balance, or if you have like a gluten allergy or something mm-hmm. like that. So it, it's a trial and error. And that's what your training runs are for yep. is seeing what you can eat without <laughs> wanting without having upset tummy yeah yeah <laughs> um and gives you the energy but you need calories i usually recommend eating depending on your effort level i like to eat every 45 to 60 minutes mm-hmm. depending on my effort and how long i'm going um so like even for a half marathon i generally eat once to twice during the race yeah and then while i was nursing i was eating more than that yep. so that also plays a factor too um, so, cause I'm sure there are going to be other athletes out there that are going through having babies and yep. having to nurse. And yep. I have, I have done, a, I've done an ultra where, or done a, a race where I was pumping in the middle of the race. Like, you know, you kind of have to, or you stop and pump, but whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but you choose the courses that work for you for that kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, when I first started running longer distances, I made the mistake of not giving myself nutrition in a, until I felt like I needed it. And by that point, it was almost too late to recover from it. Yeah. Never deplete. Yeah. It's very hard to come back from depletion. Yep. Um, and especially in the summertime when you're hot and don't really want to eat, you kind of mm-hmm. have to force yourself. So you have to find things that work for you. Um, a lot of people will do pickle juice. Um, in the summertime mm-hmm. because it's easy to get down and it gives you all the, the salt you need. Um, some, some people do, <laughs> I've done, I've done a lot of different races. Some people will do like whiskey slushies. <laughs> um, there, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, you, yeah. you'd be surprised what people can eat on the run. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm more of the sensitive stomach route. So yeah. I have to be so, careful about what yeah. I'm eating. And I find for me too, softer gels, softer food, the softer granola bars that I don't have to chew a lot yeah. work really well. Um, I also like mashed potatoes. Um, I know a lot of people or mashed avocado. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will ro- roll that up in a tortilla and take that with them on their run. Cause it's That's easy smart. and packable. Yep. Um, you can also do that with nut butters. Um, putting nut butter in a tortilla with honey um, mm-hmm. is a good option as well. Um, it's a re- they're all really, you just need to make sure you're getting calories in because yep. you don't realize how much you're expending 
depending on what you're doing but even if you're just climbing a really steep mountain Mm -hmm. like that takes a lot out of you yeah um so you kind of have to pay attention to that too yep now after these events, after these longer runs, I'm I'm big for myself and my body on recovery and taking care of myself afterwards. I do foam rolling that you've already mentioned, um, stretching with yoga. I also do a lot of CBD and Epsom salt baths. Are there other things that you like to incorporate to help your body recover faster? I like Epsom salt baths for sure, um, especially if it's after a really, really long run. If I have the time, I do mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Like after a 50K or more, I definitely do an Epsom salt bath. Um, I actually, I have a massage gun that I use mm-hmm. a lot, um, but that kind of goes with foam rolling. You can do it with, you can do everything that you do with a massage gun with a foam roller. Yep. Um, I actually like doing yoga for runners. Um, uh, I like yoga. Yoga with Adrian is my favorite. <laughs> to go that to. is my favorite as well. That's I think so that's funny. everyone's favorite. Yeah. She's amazing. Um, but yeah, so I do a lot of her yoga for runners mm-hmm. um, after my runs. Or if it's not right after the run, it's later in the day. My biggest piece of advice is don't sit on the couch. Yeah. After a run, get up, get moving, even if it's just cleaning the house a little bit, mm-hmm. taking the dog on a walk, going just you know, going to the grocery store and walking around. I find that if you sit and don't move the rest of the day or even the next day, you will be miserable and your muscles get so tight and tense. You got to keep moving. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people are just so exhausted. I mean, you can take a nap if you need to take a nap, but like most people, if you're exhausted, they are, and they're tired from a long run like that, they just sit the rest of the day. And I highly recommend keeping yourself active Mm because if you don't um, keep yourself active, you'll get injuries because of tightness. Um, so we want to keep yourself going with that. Yeah. Um, I'm not amazing about stretching after runs. I force myself to do it most of the time because the dog starts to stretch. And so yeah. I remind me I have to stretch. So <laughs> Thank you, Miles, for that human cue. So I start to do it. <laughs> so I, I do try to consciously, especially after long runs, I try to do some stretching. Yeah. I actually like to stretch in the shower. That's actually my favorite place to stretch because mm-hmm. like you're already warm and Yeah. That's my favorite time to stretch actually. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I in particular have trouble with as well, because as you know, I have an autoimmune uh, disease that makes everything hurt all the time. And I know a lot of friends that I have talked to have this challenge as well is how to balance the signs of, am I overdoing it or is this normal pain or normal wear and tear? So normal pain and wear and tear I would say is more of like you're tight, you're achy a little bit, but it goes away within a day or two and you're, but you're still active and you're still energetic. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're overdoing it, you start to get more injuries. First off, you get strains, your joints don't start feeling better. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts to impact everything that you do in your life, not just running. Yep. Or, or whatever activity you're doing, biking, and you're tired all the time. And you, even if you sleep, you're not restful. It's, so when you start feeling like you wake up from, from going, waking up in the morning and you're still exhausted, mm-hmm. take a day off because yeah. generally that means you're overtraining um, and you need to kind of back it off. It's hard training for a race to say, Ugh, I need to take off a day. It's okay to miss a run. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that is something I've had to learn. <laughs> I'm not perfect. I've definitely overtrained before, mm-hmm. um, which is why I come from experience. Yep. Definitely back it off if you feel like you're overtraining. And don't feel like you have to do every race. That's also something I tend to not be good at because mm-hmm. of FOMO. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but my uh, friends yeah. are doing it. I have exactly. to do it too. Exactly. So everyone does it together. So we all miss out. Yeah. yeah. So I have to say COVID has been good for me because it's made me back off a bit. Yeah. Um, it's kind of good to take on and off years as well. Um, I've been running since I've been running longer distances since 2012 ish, somewhere in 2011, 2012, I've been running mm-hmm. longer distances. Um, and it's important to take on and off years yeah. and have goal races, um, so that you're not overdoing it throughout the year. Um, yep. if you're a competitive athlete and you have to do more, obviously that's a different kind of training cycle, mm-hmm. but if you're just a, this is more of more of a, a a fun sport, a fun thing to do, kind of a hobby. Just take it easy. 
because you can definitely injure yourself if you're not watching the warning signs of yep. tiredness and exhaustion. Yep. And coming back from those injuries is yeah. tough because it means a lot of time off until it fully heals. And then starting from square one in terms of building yourself back up again. So taking that necessary time is important. There are ways when you're injured to keep your endurance up. Like right. I twisted my ankle pretty badly on a stupid route that I've twisted it twice on now. Oh, um, <laughs> um, in 2018 and I'm still recovering from that, but I've done a lot of work to strengthen the ankle. Right. Um, but during that time I didn't lose my fitness. I had a race that I had to get ready for, Mm -hmm. but I was able to full run instead. So there's no impact and I was still able to heal properly and not overdo it. Um, and you know that I feel like there's, there are ways to keep yourself training Mm -hmm. without injuring yourself further, Yeah. but make sure you take the time. I mean, I took a full six weeks to off my ankle when I, when I twisted it, which, um, was not idea was not my favorite thing in the world. I know it's so hard. I had to do it. (laughs) And I knew if I hadn't, I would have injured myself further because then you start having compensatory injuries in your knee and then your hip and you know, yep. Yeah. All connected. (laughs) Yeah. It's all chain. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's jump over and talk about the canine side of this, because I know that you see dogs professionally and work with them from a rehabilitation side. And you've also taken your dog on some of these training runs with you. Generally, when we're building up mileage for humans, is it the same for dogs? Um, I would say it depends on the dog um, and the energy level of the dog Mm -hmm. and the the willingness of the dog too. Um, Some dogs just don't want to run yeah, and they would much rather hike and that's okay. Um, <laughs> Miles, on the other hand, who is, he's like, I call him the energizer bunny, although he, you would never know it cause he's a pretty laid back dude, but he can go and go and go and go and go. And I have to pull him back because mm-hmm. I know that if I let him go too much, he'll injure himself. So I usually start training them. Um, I don't recommend starting running with them until after 18 to 20 months of mm-hmm. age, um, when their, their growth plot plates have fully closed. Um, and we don't know exactly, but that's, you can start doing things before then, but very low key, more leash training. Mm-hmm. Um, and more like, I, I would be okay with hiking earlier on, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily, or maybe doing like a jaunt down the street, yeah, like to your corner and, you know, just to kind of get them, you know, in the mood to run. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily get them on a long run. Um, and you build them just like you would yourself. You start with a mile and then you slowly build from there. So, you know, I think for dogs, for miles, I mean, I, I build, built him up to 16 at one point. Mm -hmm. Um, he probably would have kept going, but I was tired. So we stopped. (laughs) So, um, and that was not an easy run. It was trail running. It was going up and down the mountain. Um, you know, it was, it was a pretty intense run. So, but you can build them to what you want them to do. Dogs are a a lot of dogs are meant for endurance they're the the fact that they have four legs compared to two are Mm -hmm. actually a lot more efficient at running than we are um and when it comes to trail running it's even better they have better proprioception than we do i actually follow miles Mm -hmm. most of the time when i'm running because he knows where to put his feet yeah (laughs) and i follow him (laughs) because he knows exactly how to go with his brain um and but it is important to watch signs for their exhaustion too. Mm-hmm. Stiffness is a big one, especially for the bigger dogs who, you know, tend to get more hip issues later on in life. You know, you kind of want to make sure that you're watching for different signs of subtle lameness, mm-hmm. um, especially after the runs. And stretching yeah. them after the runs is important too. They generally will stretch themselves most of the time if they need it. Um, but I find that um, especially after really, really long runs. I tend to do a lot more hamstring stretching, quad mm-hmm. stretching and shoulder stretching for them uh, for miles, especially. Yep. Um, but also doing spinal stretching too. It puts a lot of strain on them and watching for their pads as well. Yeah. Especially if you're running on the road and you want to make sure that they're not getting cuts or, or calluses built yep. up on the pads that are, are bad for them, you know, cause they can get irritations as well. And if it's hot out, don't run with them on the road. Yeah. They can burn themselves. So yep. very easily. Um, Especially so, in our dog powered sports where they're in oh, harness yeah. and pulling, it'll yeah. just rip. And something up. you can 
for protection for their pads, there is something called mushers mm-hmm. that I like. Um, it's a, it's like an ointment that you can put on their pads that yep. I find just gives them a little extra protection, depending on what kind of ground you're on. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had to use it for miles because usually the, the trails that we're running are softer, but if you're doing a lot more gravel trail or just rocky in general, mm-hmm. I usually recommend getting something like that just to kind of give them a little more. And some dogs have more friable pads than others. Yep. Um, but they'll build their calluses up as you build up their distance as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I think that a lot of people, especially people who are not experienced with dog body language or analyzing dog gates, have a challenging time analyzing when the gate might be off. People generally will notice the big head bobbing mm-hmm. uh, when we get major lameness, but sometimes we'll have a hard time identifying those smaller signals that the dog might be getting stiff during a run, might be kind of losing their interest. What do you generally recommend that clients start to look for as their dog might be backing off from a run? So first off, before you even go to the run, the willingness to go to the run is Mm -hmm. the first step. Um, If they don't want to go with you, don't force them because that means that they need to rest. Um, Now, if you have a very stubborn dog and they're always not going to want to go for a run. That's different. And you know, your dog the best in that sense. But if they truly, if you've been doing a lot of runs with them and they feel like that one day they just don't want to go, don't force them. That's a rest day for them Mm -hmm. and maybe do some other strength building training for them, which is going to be, we can talk about that in a minute, but that's going to be important as well. Um, on the run, as you start out running them in shorter distances, you will start to learn their gait. And that's the big thing. If you can't see it, then I would recommend having someone video you initially mm-hmm. um, from the side. And there is actually a really good app called Coach's Eye that can s- slow down the video so that you can truly watch the gate and see if something changes. Um, it makes a huge difference for subtle, subtle lamenesses to be able to kind of slow it down. And even if it's like a wrong foot placement, it may that may be it may be super subtle. Um, stiffness, I find. It, you can usually tell that they don't want to flex their hip or flex their knee. That's mm-hmm. usually what I can kind of see. Front limbs, it's usually they're trying to keep them in nice and tight and they don't want to extend it all the way. Yep. So that's those are usually kind of the signs that I look for. And it may not be an overt lameness. It just is more of a stiffness. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they start to slow down, that's another. I mean, they're going to get tired just like you are. You tend to slow down towards the end of your run, same with yep. them. So ultimately, you guys are both going to be on the same page when it comes to slowing down, although they'll probably outrun you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, but usually those are the big things to watch for. And if you are noticing abnormalities in their gait, you know, definitely have that evaluated um, because you don't want it to become a chronic injury and mm-hmm. then not be able to run with them anymore. Yep, Absolutely. Now, we talked a little bit about hydration and nutrition for the human half of the team while we're out doing maybe some of our longer runs. Um, When you were training for your longer distances with Miles, were you bringing snacks out on the trail for him as well? Um, Not so much. He... It's. I think it's very dog dependent. Mm -hmm. I'm not a... uh, He does not like to eat or drink when we're running. He'll drink sometimes um, if he's like hot. He'll, He'll drink. And I generally don't take him in summer runs. Mm-hmm. except early, early in the morning. Cause it's too hot for him. Um, that's another thing they can overheat very quickly and get into heat stroke issues, which yep. you want to avoid. Um, so in the summertime, if you are going to run with them, I recommend going super early before the sun really comes out. Um, and trail don't run road because the road, the pavement never really cools off in the yep. summertime. Um, if you have to run road, just do it kind of in a shady, more shaded area if you can, or shorter runs. Um, but yeah, I try to, I'll bring water. I usually bring a bowl with extra, extra water bottle in my pack with me whenever we run long. Um, so if he is thirsty, we can, I can give him some water. Mm-hmm. Um, electrolytes. There's some mixed, mixed data with it. Yep. I, you know, I feel like it's not going to hurt him to have some, you know, electrolytes. I take salt pills sometimes when I'm running in the summertime to give myself extra salt, but I don't, I wouldn't necessarily give that to him. Um, I think really pre-run and post-run is going to be really important nutrition wise for them. Um, there's a lot of different foods out there. I don't feel like there's one that's better than another, um, when it comes to like sport doc. Now, if you are doing lots of longer runs, 
you want to make sure the days that you are going for a long run, you feed them a little more mm-hmm. um, because they're burning just as many calories as you, if not more. <laughs> so yeah. they're going to be hungrier. And, you know, I think a big thing is weight control for them. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, you're going to keep them active by being active, but you want to make sure you're keeping them lean mm-hmm. because if you're, if they're overweight, it shows in their runs and it yep. shows in their, their recovery time as well. Yep. And it's going to impact their body a little bit more each time they're yep. putting those feet down. Yep. Just like us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just like us. Yep. Now, are you recommending any supplementation? I know me personally for my dogs, I do glucosamine for them. Um, are there, I know, again, the studies on this can be a little bit hit or miss, but what are you generally recommending for your clients? Um, I actually recommend fish oils. Um, and it's a higher dose of fish oil for joint health versus the skin and eyes and just general inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, the studies with fish oil in particular has been, it's been shown that the inflammation in the joints was reduced significantly. I take fish oil myself. Um, I also take, uh, I also give, I give miles pro tan, a pet tandem. Um, I take pro tandem myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another supplement I look at, um, that helps reduce free radicals in the body. Um, so that's another one, but glucosamine's great. Uh, it's the, the research is hit or miss, as you said, mm-hmm. it's, I, I do recommend it. I do feel like it does give the joints extra nutrients that it could use. Um, I actually really like joint diets. If you're looking for things more as a preventative measure and you know, you're going to be doing a lot more activity with them. There's some, there's prescri- so there's some prescription joint diets that I mm-hmm. really like, um, and all of, I mean, all of the companies make them Hills, Purina, Rolcanin, Canaan, they all make joint diets. And the, the benefit of doing something like that is you can get a higher dosage of the fish oil. A lot of them have glucosamine in them. Mm-hmm. So you're not having to give a ton of extra supplements. Although I still like adding an extra fish oil with them. Cause I just feel like they need a little more, yep. but it does th- those diets, the research behind those diets have been shown to reduce arthritic changes and have been shown to help with inflammation in the body. So that's another way to kind of use nutrition. Um, It's not just about providing the nutrients they need, but it's also about keeping their joints healthy too. Yep, absolutely. So with our dogs, one of the things I'm a big fan of that I'm sure you are as well is going to see a professional proactively instead of reactively. Of course, we want to go in after we notice any lameness or uh, signs of wear and tear on our dog's body, but going proactively can have a lot of benefits as well. And I know that's something that you see clients for. Can you talk us through some of the benefits that a dog might have if somebody really is looking to jump into a very intense fitness plan for their dogs? Um, Some of the things that you might recommend to do before they do that. So I would definitely recommend just having a, a basic evaluation. And I would say probably from a rehab vet, And the reason why I say that is they're looking for something different than what a general practitioner. Now, granted, there are some general practitioners out there that are very rehab minded and focused. Mm -hmm. So those, those would be great resources as well. Um, But I do find that if you're looking at for subtle changes in the body that could potentially happen, you're going to see subtle muscle changes and subtle joint changes that a rehab bet is more tuned in with. So that would be something before you even get started, even as a puppy, you know, I know there's been a lot of, there's getting the the hips checked and that kind of thing with radiographs and doing the pen hip versus, you know, if there's, there's a lot of different options out there when it comes to, to having your, the joints looked at. So that would be something the general practitioner could do if they are certified in pen hip or something like that to make sure hip wise, you're looking great, mm-hmm. you know, um, but the rehab that would look at make sure confirmation wise, you can kind of proactively say, okay, this dog has some a luxating patella. They're more prone to having cruciate disease because of the luxating patella. How can we strengthen those quads? How can mm-hmm. we strengthen those hamstrings and glutes to help support that knee as much as possible? So that if they were to twist funny on the trail, their body is supported by that and they're able to you know, prevent that injury from happening potentially now over time, you know, the wear and tear on the knee, even if you try and prevent it could still happen. So, you know, but, but the fact that you've worked on strengthening them ahead of time 
will make that recovery from that injury and that surgery significantly faster than if you were to do it just with a dog that has no no background in, in strength um, right. and the muscles have atrophied or you know haven't been been used properly Yep. And that kind of goes into our cross training for canine athletes as well, because we can have at home plans that help target certain muscle groups that will make our dogs uh, stronger. And like you said, better equipped to handle those turns on the trails. Is that something that you guys are putting together for your clients uh, pre-injury as well as post-injury? Yes. <laughs> yes. So um, we don't see as many at the moment. And I think because of COVID, I know previously we were seeing a lot more mm-hmm. um, pre like, you know, pre injury, it's important to kind of get a good baseline to build strength at home. Um, and a lot of the exercises, you know, normally we have clients that actually come in our facility and do it with us. Yep. Um, so when it comes to training for strength training we have the gyms we have you know to to and and the tools and the therapist at at gbr (laughs) to to like kind of help build a plan for them to keep Mm -hmm. them strong for their activities if you're doing multi active like so if you do multi sports so if you're not just doing cane across or bike drawing and you're doing that plus like dock diving and or frisbee you know like there's a lot of other injuries you can have so right the goal is to work on balance and core strength and is the most important thing. Um, and making sure, and I'm sure with agility as well, making sure that they're landing properly off of jumps. Mm -hmm. Um, if you are having a weakness and that's where you start to see overuse injuries, I like trails because they're not getting the same thing all the time. They're using their bodies in different ways. Um, all the time and the muscles are not getting overused in that sense because they're adjusting to the terrain mm-hmm. um unless you're running the same thing every single day right. <laughs> that's different but you know ultimately most of the time most of us don't run the same trail all the time so right. usually if you're even if they're running on the same trail all the time they're still getting a different texture as yep. they go throughout the run hitting so, turns different um, ways hitting hills different ways exactly so when it comes to rehab you kind of focus on what the dog's doing and use your strength training program to build the muscles up that you feel like they're going to use the most, but also to help create, to prevent imbalances. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like they're going to be doing a lot of jumping or jumping over trees or running on rocks, Mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be definitely some things that you'll have to do to kind of help their bodies adjust and, and train for that, just like we would for balance. Yep. And a lot of that training can go a long way in terms of helping prevent injuries down the road. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I think when a lot of people think of canine fitness, they they think of two things. They think of all the fancy equipment and (laughs) that they're going to have to spend a fortune on it. And they think of it as being a huge time commitment that they're going to have to put in on top of everything else they're dealing with. So would you please bust those two myths? Oh, for sure. 10 to 15 minutes a day. That's all you need. Um, And usually, actually, so the stretching for them, you can do while you're sitting and watching TV. Right now, while I'm talking to you, I am currently stretching Miles and massaging him. So <laughs> you can you can incorporate that into every day. I usually recommend doing some of the strength training stuff. You can either do it all at once or you can break it up and do it whenever you go for a walk. While you're out on a walk, make them sit and stand on a hill with their butt going down the hill and their front legs going up the hill. Use gravity as your friend and make them make them work hard and make them have to stand without pulling with their front legs. So that's, you know, to get those glutes to activate. So there's there's ways of incorporating it into every day without having a lot of materials. You mm-hmm. can use the curbs on the sidewalk. You can use the grass in the like while you're walking in the house. You use your bed, your couch cushions. Anything that creates somewhat of a a wobbliness or an imbalance Mm -hmm. you can use um you can use a ladder if you want to work with cavalettis and lifting up their feet properly so that they're placing them um you don't like and most people have ladders at their house if you don't have a ladder you can get like pvc piping and lay it out there's a lot of stuff that you can do that's not super expensive Mm -hmm. if you wanted to purchase a couple of things specifically for them i usually recommend getting like a balance disc because that have little spikies on the bottom Mm -hmm. um, that'll mimic them going over rocks and on on, on uneven terrain. Um, But other than, I mean, like, and you can do so much with that. 
Um, and you can do a rocker board if you wanted to do something like that. But you could just use a piece of plywood with a with something underneath it to make a rocker board. Like so yeah. there's there's a lot of stuff you can do and be creative to to make, you know, make something for them. Um, yeah. and it 10 to 15 minutes a day. And you don't have to do every exercise every day. We don't do every exercise every day. So, you know, just something, even if yep. it's one or two exercises, it makes a big difference for them long-term. Yep. And for everyone listening from a training standpoint, remember that the more training you're doing with your dog, the more connected you are with them as a team, you know, working on the these exercises, you're using food reinforcement. So you're helping build that bond and strengthen that relationship, and which is going to make your dog powered sports easier because they're learning to trust you as a team and learning that you bring them good things. So it's not only benefiting your canine fitness level, but it's also benefiting that relationship that you have with your dog. Oh, in regards to treats. Um, and weight control. Um, Do pay attention to what you're giving and make sure that you're using only the high value stuff when you need it and using, because you don't necessarily need really high fatty stuff when you're doing stuff that they're used to doing. Yep. Absolutely. And even using their regular diet, a lot of these exercises are inside, no distraction level. There's no reason they couldn't just work for their food for a lot of these exercises. Yeah, for sure. And, And, you know, take a portion of their food away yep. to use that as treats. Yes. <laughs> that's that's very what I important. See the, that's what I see the most is when I see for post-injury, we'll go into that, um, or geriatric dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I see what happens is they get overweight and because they're not as active as they get older or because they've injured themselves and they can't be as active, they end up gaining a lot of weight and no one thinks to adjust their food. Yep. So that is something if your dog does end up getting injured, you want to make sure that you are adjusting calorie content too to match what their activity level is. Because if they are super active all the time and they are expending so much energy all the time, they do need those extra calories at that point. Mm-hmm. When they stop working, you got to back it off a little bit. Yep. And that includes treats too, because and, and adjusting what you're giving as treats so that yeah. you don't cause too much weight gain. That's I what think... I see post-surgery a lot. I see, yeah. I see a lot of weight gain. I know a lot of people at the upper level in this sport have some of the fittest dogs I have ever seen, but I think a lot of pet people and people who are just getting into these sports have a hard time understanding when their dog is overweight versus when they are not. A lot of people think that, especially for big dogs, that bigger is better and that they should just always go by what the back of the bag recommends, which sometimes, as we know, all dogs have different metabolisms, all dogs have different fitness levels. And so that's not always the best way to go. So can you quickly describe to us how somebody might be able to put their hands on their dog and determine whether or not their dog is at the appropriate weight? Yeah. So I always like, so towards the back of their ribs, um, you should be able to feel their ribs, but not necessarily see them. Um, And you should be able, it should be like, the sub Q layer should be about as thick as a piece of duct tape is the best way I can describe it. So, um, and not just the skin. So if you lift the skin up and you feel underneath, that's mm-hmm. their sub Q layer. If it's, if you have to push in a little more then it's probably a little much, um, and you want to back it off a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that's as easy as changing those calories, remembering mm. that what you're putting in might be a little bit too much. So backing off, feeding smaller quantities, having our dogs work for food instead of just gulping it out of a regular stainless steel bowl can help the dogs feel more full while while even eating less. So that can help uh, by putting food in food puzzles and can make your your dog feel a little less hungry as they have to work for that food. So as we are looking at some of the other work that you do with your clients, a lot of it does happen post-injury. So when a dog tears something like a cruciate uh, or has a muscle strain or tear, what are um, some of the injuries that you see dogs coming in with and what does that recovery time look like? Um, The most common is probably a cruciate cruciate tear um, in in the knees. And usually when one tears, the other will tear Mm -hmm. um, down the road. So just when you prepare for that, (laughs) just know that it's going to happen on the other side down the road and cruciate tears can be due to confirmation. So it could be nothing to do with overuse. It could just be the angle of their knee. Mm -hmm. Um, or it could be a true, like they twisted it and it just like an ACL tear in a person. You never know. Mm -hmm. It could, it could rupture. Um, post-op 
So it depends. So if you're planning, I usually recommend for cruciates doing surgery. The reason why I recommend that is, and I usually recommend TPLOs um, or a TTA, but usually TPLOs. And the reason why I say is the stability in the joint is a lot better with that particular with that particular surgery. I know it sounds like a very drastic surgery because you're cutting the bone and repositioning it, um, but ultimately it will slow down progression of arthritis and it makes them a lot more comfortable because when they have a cruciate tear, their tibial bone kind of thrusts forward every time they move and it frictions with that femur and it makes it really uncomfortable and all those nerves that live on the end of your femur get get hit every single time they move. So, and it creates all this inflammation in the joint and then arthritis develops and then the body tries to repair itself by creating scar tissue on the inner side of the knee called medial buttress <laughs> that ultimately the body's going to not feel great and you mm -hmm. won't be able to run with them because their knees are going to just be too painful. Where when we do a TPLO surgery that stabilizes the knee to the point where they can usually get back to doing their activity I would say getting back to a full run with them, you're looking at six to 12 months after. Um, you can start doing activity. Usually, I usually like to restrict them for 12 weeks post-surgery um, and start rehab usually within a week of the mm -hmm. surgery. Um, so you want to get them using it and getting them moving, but you don't want to overdo it. We, we really, I like, I'm a kind of, I'm more conservative when it comes back. I find that if you overdo it too quickly, they tend to injure themselves in other areas a yeah. lot more. So, um, you end up a lot, a lot more with compensatory injuries if you're having issues in one area. So slow, slow again, like us, yeah. like you want to go slow with your recovery, um, and physical therapy, you know, in rehab, we, we build exercises based on balance and getting those glutes and getting those hamstrings to fire again, because mm -hmm. a lot of times they're atrophied after surgery from having, from, or from post-injury just because of disuse. So you want to get them using that leg and relearning, reteaching their brain that they can use it. Cause mm -hmm. a lot of times they've learned that it's more efficient to just walk with three legs, which with us that can't happen, which is why we tend to recover faster, yeah. but with them, they have three legs. So it's actually reteaching especially the tiny dogs i find that the small small dogs have a harder time mm -hmm. a lot of times because they are just so light and their bodies are like oh, i can move with three and it's totally fine yeah <laughs> and they can do everything on three legs so you want to kind of um encourage them to start using that leg and slow walk initially to kind of get them to move slower yeah um and then other injuries you know i i see shoulder injuries as well biceps mm -hmm. tendinopathies um, those can be more chronic and you, if you, if you see an issue in the shoulder, you want to get that nip it in the butt as quick as possible. Cause, and, and rest them as much as we can and get them on rehab program as quickly as you can. Same with elbow injuries. Um, because ultimately those, those, any tendon injury is going to be a lot harder to heal and it takes a lot longer to heal just like in people. Mm -hmm. Um, but we have ways of, of helping those, those joints to kind of heal a little faster. Um, I like using shockwave a lot in my shoulders and my elbows. Mm -hmm. um, I find that makes a huge difference for them along with strength, strength training. Um, we use a lot of underwater treadmill to kind of take their weight off of their joints for all injuries in general. Also helps with weight loss, also helps with core strength, um, mm -hmm. but also helps with endurance. So if you do want to get them back to activity a lot faster, the underwater treadmill makes a huge difference. Or if your dog is heat intolerant, this kind of goes with as a proactive measure. If your mm -hmm. dog's heat intolerant in the summertime, if you want to maintain their activity, underwater treadmill, that keeps them being able to move and keeps them going. And yep. you can go real hard in an underwater treadmill. Um, we have a we have a staff dog actually that that does it almost every day. Um, she I think she alternates every other day with with land therapy as well. But she, I mean, she's running full out in a treadmill. And with water and she's yeah. just going the whole time and it tires her out and she doesn't have to go as long because it's six times the resistance than running on right. the right. So, right. So it, it, you know, but I find that for my post injuries, it makes a big difference being able to take that gravity out of the picture and still keep their endurance and keep yep. their brain active because these dogs are active. You gotta, you gotta give them something to do. Yeah. So they don't drive <laughs> so you nuts of my, or drive a themselves A lot of nuts. my post-surgery dogs, I recommend nose work. Because it keeps their brains a little more active. Yep, absolutely. So. And the body doesn't have to move quite as much. Yeah. 
Well, I know that a lot of people view canine rehab therapists more as a reactive situation where they would go just after an injury. I hope that this will kind of open people's eyes that a lot of this work can and should be done proactively. So if somebody was looking to find a certified canine rehabilitation therapist, how would they go about locating one in their area? So Canine Rehab Institute, um, their website has a list. So you go to find your therapist and it you can put your, I think it's your zip code in and it tells you all of the therapists in your area. Um, and it's based off state. So that's usually who I refer to, especially mm-hmm. if I have clients that travel between states and need to continue rehab. Um, that's usually the resource that we go to to find what's going to be closest for them to maintain their their rehab. And I'm sure that as people prepare for this appointment, we of course want to work on body handling so the dog is comfortable, strangers comfortable with their body being touched. Are there certain things that you like to have your clients bring in or certain things you like to remind them that maybe they could prepare ahead of time? I would say most dogs don't need this, but if they need a muzzle, muzzle mm-hmm. train them. So they're not stressed out just because of us putting on a muzzle. Yep. And if they have a muzzle at home, bring it and put it on them before they come in the building. So it's not a not a stressful event when they first come in, mm-hmm. uh, make it a positive experience when they wear their muzzle. Yep. Um, you know, we see a lot of dogs that are in a lot of pain. So sometimes they haven't been trained to a muzzle because they haven't needed it in the past, mm-hmm. but when you're painful, I know I would want to bite. So, yeah. Yeah. so sometimes they want to bite because, and sometimes they're, they get aggressive or they get really freaked out because they're painful. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to know that if your dog is in pain, then knowing that they may act differently in a clinic situation, whereas before they may have been completely normal at Mm -hmm. a general practice, like for vaccines or just wellness visits, you know, that's going to be a less painful event versus, you know, being post-surgery, especially coming into a rehab vet after surgery. Um, I find that those dogs are just so overwhelmed from having to go from clinic to clinic. Yeah. And most of the time they've seen two vets before they've seen me, sometimes three. So they have had probably some negative experiences, hopefully not too many, (laughs) but some. So, you know, if you feel like your dog is anxious or stressed out, knowing when to give them a sedative, Mm -hmm. um, those are completely okay to give and, you know, to keep their anxiety down and make it a positive experience. We use a lot of positive reinforcement. So if you're a, if your dog has a sensitive tummy, bring treats with you. You know, we, we use a lot of peanut butter. We use a lot of high value treats because we're doing things that they may not want us to do. So we try to make it low, low stress, but sometimes just the nature of, of post-injury or pre-injury, you know, being in a clinic, especially right now with COVID with, owners not being in the room, sometimes that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate to say it. Yeah. Bring your stress level down too, because that's the biggest thing I've seen. And actually COVID has kind of shown me that it's what I was thinking was actually true because we're all doing curbside right now, curbside yep. care. So clients are in the cars waiting and we're doing the, bring the dogs in and we're doing the exams and then we call and we chat. But, um, you know, I find that the dogs are actually a lot calmer with the owners not in the room a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And it may be because they're feeding off their owner's stress. Yep. So if you're prepared when, when we can finally have clients back in the building, <laughs> if you start to prepare yourself mentally, Oh, we're going into a clinic. I need to be relaxed, whatever mm-hmm. that is for you, whether that's meditation, whether that's yoga before you come, whether that's just a breathing exercise in the car before you walk in the door, the dog re- feeds off of your energy. Yep. They know you, they feed off you. If you're stressed, they're going to be stressed. Um, and a lot of times post if you have been in a surgery situation, you're already stressed financially, you're stressed because the dog had to go under anesthesia, take it down. Just remember that the dog is going to be speeding off your energy. And if you're not careful about yourself, you could, you could push that onto the dog. Um, and you know, at, you know, I I think that makes a huge difference (laughs) if the owners are calmer too. helping be our dog's advocate and and be there to support them. Yep. Exactly. Well, do you have any other last minute tips or uh, ideas to give to our audience who might be getting into a bigger fitness program with their dogs? I would say start with a 5k, start training from couch to 5k mm-hmm. and do it with your dog. Um, there's a lot of really good programs out there for that. Um, and 
I'm not going to give it like any specific ones. There's a lot of them. So, um, but if you're going for a half marathon, I'm a big fan of the intermediate Jeff Galloway plan. That one in particular does a lot of cross training. So when you see that on your schedule that you have to do a strength day, make sure your dog does a strength day that day, whatever you're doing, your dog should be doing because ultimately you guys are both training for the same thing uh-huh. and you're both going to have the same, same courses that you have to go over. So if you're doing a lot of road and your dog needs to get adjusted to road, then run the road. For me, I've had to learn how to run with a stroller. So I didn't start running with a stroller. I started like long distance. My first run was like three miles. Well, mm-hmm. for me, that's pretty short. So, yep. <laughs> but you know, so for me, like I had to build not just the running with the stroller, I built the strength to push the stroller. So I had right. strength workouts in regards to that. And then running with the dog on top of the stroller, you know, with the stroller, like next. So he had to get used to running with a stroller on a certain right. side. So you kind of have to adjust your plan depending on what you're doing. Yep. Um, I mean, you can build yourself up and you can build your dog up to whatever distance you want. I, if you are looking at marathon distances with your dog, just be cognizant of the time of year you're going to be doing it. I usually recommend doing those in colder weather uh-huh. um, because it's going to be really hard on the dog to train those longer runs. Um, if you're, if you're training for ultras, it may be worth looking into getting into a group like uh, guts, mm-hmm. uh, like the Georgia ultra and trail society or working with big peach in general, any of the people at big peach running company. Uh, that's actually who I started training with initially. That's how I met all my running friends was through big peach. <laughs> and then I'm also part of Georgia ultra trail running society. There's a lot of ultra trail societies. There's yeah. Yeti runners. There's anyway. So I would recommend getting in with one of those groups to to learn how to train yourself. And mm-hmm. ultimately when you start doing that, you'll be able to start building up the, the distance for your dog too. Yep. I haven't run an ultra with, uh, with miles, but I, I mean, he probably, if he was younger, I'd probably consider it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like it would be a, a little much for them. I would say marathon and under is probably okay. Um, some dogs cannot ter- tolerate that marathon distance and a half and a half is all they can do, you yeah. know? So just, kind of feel your dog out. If you feel like they just can't make it longer than 13, then don't go further than that. Um, or if you start to go further than that, you notice that they start getting lame back it to where they were comfortable. Um, you still want to challenge them, but that could just be challenging them with the terrain you're running on, Mm -hmm. um, or the speed you're running at. Um, that's also a challenge too. Yep. So that's, yeah. that's wonderful. Dr. Copeland, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. You gave a lot of really great information when we are looking at both the human athlete and the canine athlete as a big, complete picture. And I think that this will help a lot of our viewers. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I have fun. Yeah. <laughs> for more information from Dr. Copeland and her colleagues at Georgia Veterinary Rehabilitation, feel free to visit their website. You can also follow them at Georgia Vet Rehab on Facebook, and Instagram. So, until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.